All right, my friends, today we are in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 11 is where we have come to in our verse-by-verse study. Uh, And today we are going to, as the Lord allows, make our way through the chapter and into a portion of the next chapter as well. Today our title, I think it's a very appropriate title considering that Pete and Jen just sort of shared briefly with us. It's entitled, Keep Saying Yes. And the idea will be this, that the Lord will call to you at various times in your life. He'll challenge you to step out in faith. And your responsibility will be to say yes, but it doesn't end there. Because a week down the line, the next day down the line, certainly the next year down the line, the Lord's going to call you to step out in faith again. And it will be your responsibility at that time to again say yes to where the Lord might be leading. So we'll consider that as it pertains to this particular chapter or these chapters today. Um, Now, let me remind you, we are in the process of restoring Jerusalem. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you remind us of that every single week. And you go through that Ezra had to do with the rebuilding of the temple, and then Nehemiah starts with the rebuilding of the walls, and then finally the last few chapters we look at, the rebuilding the homes uh, of the city of Jerusalem. And do you see what I just did there? I threw in the review and you didn't even know. So that's what we've been looking at. We've been spending some time considering those things. And remember back, we'll put it up on the screen so you don't even have to turn a page, but remember back to Nehemiah 7.4, it said this, it says that the city was wide and large, so the walls are rebuilt, the city was wide and large, but the people within the city were few, for no houses had yet been rebuilt. So Nehemiah knows, great, you can have this wonderful city with, with these walls there, but if no one is in the city to sort of protect those walls or to watch out that no one climbs up over those walls or destroys those walls, and nobody is in the city to kind of get life thriving, well, then what's the use? And so he knows as a wise leader that they have to once again get people back into that particular city. And so he began to work on that. And we saw in chapter 10, the people that are getting prepared for that, they began to devote themselves to that task. There was this revival that was going on in the hearts of the people. Well, now we're going to fast forward, if you will, to chapter 11. And in the situation, the story we have, the buildings now are rebuilt. The homes are in place. If you want to think of it, sort of the streets are paved now and the shrubs have been put in and everybody is ready to go. And all we need now are people. Now, the decision to live in Jerusalem would not have been an easy decision. So we might look at this and say, okay, sure, I'll move to Jerusalem. That sounds fun. But you have to remember, I I was kind of kidding that Jerusalem had paved streets and shrubs and all that. They, They wouldn't have had those particular things. It would have been a sacrifice to live within the city of Jerusalem because many of the amenities of life were not yet in place in this formerly abandoned city. And so again, I was just kidding when I said the streets were paved and the shrubs were in because the reality is none of that stuff was done yet. It would have been done. To make a comparison with our day, it's as if you were having a house built and the walls and the roof of the homes were in place, but there was no running water or electricity yet. And you have the opportunity to go and kind of live in this structure. Now the wall, the water and the electricity, those things are going to come. You just have to be patient. You know, so you go to the salesman. He said, yeah, we have bathrooms. They're down the street and around the block a little, and they're wonderful. And you think, I don't think so. I'll wait a little while before I move into that home or into the city of Jerusalem. You know, I was reminded uh, of the city of Detroit. Now, some of you know a little bit about Detroit and that Detroit, unfortunately, is having um, some difficulties as a city. And if you were afforded the opportunity to help repopulate, restore, and rebuild the city of Detroit, I wonder if you would take it. Let me give you some information about Detroit. For decades now, thousands upon thousands of people 
have been fleeing the city of Detroit, and in some cases leaving the state of Michigan altogether. In its heyday, Detroit was home to nearly 1.9 million people. Today, about 650,000 people called Detroit home, and the number is dropping every year and has been for nearly five decades. The city of Detroit declared bankruptcy in the summer of 2013. The crime rate of the city of, of Detroit has soared to almost five times the national average in every category of violent crime, murder, rape, armed robbery, theft, and burglary, and it has done that for the last 15 years. The schools of Detroit are considered among the worst performing schools in the nation. Not a very rosy picture, is it? Now imagine somebody offered you the opportunity to go and live in Detroit. You'd probably turn it down. Now you might tell yourself, you know, it's a good idea. Some good people, honest people, hardworking men and women, that's all that's needed to restore this city. And your head might tell you that, but your heart is saying, I ain't going to Detroit. Are you out of your mind? And similarly, that's how some people were thinking about the conditions that were in Jerusalem. Now the crime rate may not have been as bad in Jerusalem, but as far as the city being rebuilt and ready to go, it just wasn't there. It wasn't finished yet. It was not yet a thriving city as it once was. And so people that were going to move to Detroit were going to have to make some real sacrifices. And they were going to have to put up with some temporary, hopefully temporary, inconveniences until things sort of came online. Now maybe you recall in our study of last week, chapter 10 was a chapter of dedication. It was people that sort of heard what the Word said and said, all right, we're committing to that. We will do that. We will go where God wants us to go, and we will do what God wants us to do. And they pledged. They went up front to the altar. They did all those things that you have to do in that particular pledge. We saw that in chapter 10, verse 29, where it said that they took an oath to walk in God's law. Chapter 10 is the chapter of dedication. Chapter 11 is Monday morning. Chapter 11 is where the rubber meets the road. So we say in chapter 10, God, I'll do whatever you want. And God says, okay, I want you to go live in Jerusalem. Thinking, oh, Lord, I didn't mean that. You know, I meant I would go to church every Sunday. That's what I meant. I meant I would be nice. I wouldn't curse at people anymore. That's what I meant. But to follow the Lord and His leading is almost always, and I don't even know, if, let's put almost in parentheses, it always means that it will require us to step out of our place of comfort and endure the difficulties for the sake of the kingdom of God. So you, go, you work your way through the Scripture. Pick a character in the Bible. You look at David, some of that I picked. David endured hardship for almost 20 years that he might continue to honor the Lord and touch not the Lord's anointed, you may recall, in 1 Samuel. Moses chose to suffer and endure infliction affliction, excuse me, with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season, the book of Hebrews said. Esther declared, all right, I'll go in, and if I die, I die. And she did, and she went into the presence of the king because the Lord told her to on behalf of the Jewish people. And more often than not, the answer to our prayer, when we say, God, I want personal revival, I want spiritual revival, I want to see it come to our land, more often than not, that means that we're going to have to leave our place of comfort and go places we never thought we would go and do things we never would have signed up to do. And I think that brings us, that's the setting, if you will, for the story that we're going to look up at today. And so beginning in chapter 11, verse 1, we read this. It says, now the leaders of the people, they lived in Jerusalem. 
And the rest of the people, they cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Turn to your neighbor and say, they blessed the others, because I need a drink. Go ahead, say that. That's a technique I saw somewhere. All right, anyhow, as I said, it wouldn't be easy to live in Jerusalem. That's why verse 1 is such a key verse. Because notice what verse 1 says. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. You see, it wouldn't be easy to do it. And that's why it's so important that you see that the leaders are doing it. Because leaders can't just say, this is what you need to do. Leaders actually have to go out and do it. They must show what must be done. And the leaders would have had no right to expect the people to live in the rough conditions of Jerusalem if they themselves weren't willing to live there. And to their credit, they lead well. And they sacrifice their own wants, their own needs, their own desires, and they go and they live in the city. And so the first group of people that will begin to repopulate this city, you're going to see it's going to be about 5,000 people. The first group of people that are going to repopulate it are the leaders. Now, in addition to the leaders we see in the second portion of verse 1 right into verse 2 that it says that there's some sort of a lottery system, a drawing of straws in which they're going to select 10% of the population to go in there as well. So we read, it says, and the rest of the people, they cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. So we've seen already that the people, they tithe their produce, the people, they tithe their possessions, that is give 10%, And now they're going to tithe their own lives as well because the Lord is asking them to do so. And so the entire population essentially submits themselves to the lot, the casting, if you will, of the lot, and says, all right, whatever the the Lord's will is, He'll show it to us in the drawing of straws. And whoever got the big straw, the small straw, or however they determined they were going to do it, that 10% of the people were going to move into the city. They were going to return to these homes Uh, And the rest of them would go into the surrounding villages around Jerusalem. So you have the leaders living there. You have 10% that were chosen by Lot that are going to go live there. And then the final group you have is at the end of verse 2. And notice it says, And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And the final group of people are those that said, Hey, I got the big straw. I wanted to go live there. And they're like, Well, you can live there too. And they willingly volunteered, they willingly offered to live there. So three groups of people that are going to inhabit the land. It'll, it'll work out to about 5,000 or so people that will go inhabit the land here. One of the things I find interesting about verse 2, it says, and the people blessed all of those who willingly offered to go to Jerusalem. This term here, the idea of blessing men, that they people bless them, it's the idea of congratulating them or cheering them on or or sort of honoring them for the decision that they were making so here are all these admirers saying you're awesome dude fantastic i'm so excited for you and thank you so much for doing that and they're encouraging them and my question is simply this if they are so excited for the people that are making this decision to go why don't they go themselves how's that feel like oh man it's father's day man make me feel good you know on the way out of here the opportunity for them to volunteer was just as available to them as it was to these other men. And it was for them as well. They, but they just chose not to take it. And instead, they merely cheer on those that do take it. 
G. Campbell Morgan commented on this, and he said this. He said, you know, it's really an easy thing for those who do not volunteer to applaud those that do. He went on, he said, applause of heroism is neither costly nor valuable. You see, the 90%, they were not required to participate in this particular work, that is, move into the city. But the blessing, not, God, not the people's cheerings, but God's blessing, the blessing was reserved for those that would. And the rest of them, unfortunately, would miss it. You see, there, there is indeed, as many of us know, great blessing in serving the Lord. But sadly, we can miss that blessing many times because we're not actually serving the Lord. But rather, we are content to cheer on those that do. You know, maybe it's time for many of us to get off the sidelines and actually get in the game. And the, I know they're sobering words. I know some of you are thinking, you're a jerk. I used to like you, but you're a jerk, you know. But I think they're important words for us to hear because the place of blessing is in the doing. And I'm reminded of one other thing as I look at these folks that do volunteer to live in Jerusalem. And, th and this is what I'm reminded. Remember, when we were studying Ezra, we were studying the book of Nehemiah. What we saw on a couple of different occasions is where various kings that were ruling over the Jewish people gave them, the people, the Jewish people, the opportunity where they could go back to Jerusalem. And what we said was at that time, only about 2% of the Jewish population actually went back. The rest of the people said, oh, I'm not going back. I'm comfortable here. My kids are in school. We're kind of settled. I'm not going back to over there. But you go for it, buddy. I'll cheer you on. I'll encourage you. Only about 2% said yes at that particular point in time. Here we are now, number of years down the road, and what is God asking these people to do now? He's asking them to say yes again. And so the point that I'm trying to make is this. We don't say yes one time back in our past. Never to say yes again. Oh, I said yes 20 years ago. I came to follow Jesus. You see, what Jesus does in our lives is every single day, every week, every year of our lives, whatever it may be, he brings us to the place and he says, do you want to go further with me? Do you want to step out? Do you want to walk in obedience to what I'm leading you to do? I need you to say yes again. And you know, see, I think the danger for us is we look back on our past and think we're good to go. But if we want to keep moving forward with the Lord, then we have to continually be at that place where we're saying, yes. You look at these people here back in Jerusalem, and I, I used the phrase before, these were sort of the cream of the crop of the Jewish people. I'll go wherever it is you want me to go. And these are those that decided they would leave the comforts of Persia, and they would come to the land of Israel, because that's what God had called them to do. And here now, the Lord is calling them again. And the Lord, in His love, is going to keep calling your life to be stretched. Because that's how your spiritual muscles are built. And to walk with Jesus, it's not a one-time decision, but rather it's a daily decision. It's a daily decision to go deeper and deeper and deeper with Him. And that's the process that God uses to conform us into the image of His Son. Of his son. And how easy it could have been for these Jews here who said, you know what, I've already made my great sacrifices. I've already said yes to the Lord. I've already made my life-changing decisions. You know, it's time. Let somebody else step out in faith. Let one of the young people step out in faith. I'm done stepping out in faith. And in some ways, that's fine. You can do that. You're still children of God. You're not going to lose your salvation or whatever if you don't step out in faith. But again, the place of blessing 
is in continually stepping out until the day you come to the end of your days. And so maybe you have been a follower of Christ from so, for some time. It's been a while now, five years, ten years, twenty years or so. Well, let me ask you this. As a follower of the Lord, are you still responding to God's call to step out in faith? Or instead, have you found yourself saying, you know what, let somebody else do it. My encouragement to you as your friend is keep saying yes. Because that's the place of blessing. That's what God would have for us. And here is this group of people about 5,000 or so of the population, let's just say about 10% of the population, and they're saying, all right, Lord, I'll go deeper with you. Where do you want me to go next? And he says, here's where I want you to go. Now, as we begin verse 3, we come to some of the more riveting passages of Scripture, a long listing of names. I'm kidding. Of those that said, yes, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. And as we've seen it at other times, both in the book of Nehemiah as well as the previous book, of Ezra, the names, they're divided into various categories. I say that because I think we can get a handle on the names. I don't know how many names. I didn't really count here. But there's some hundred names. And they're names I've never even heard of before. It's not like Bob and Stan or whatever. They're names that you never even heard of. You don't even know if you're saying it correctly. And so your mind can, your eyes just kind of blur and you read through and you get it done. But they're broken up into these groups. And I think the groups allow us to kind of get a handle on what the author here is trying to say. So he divides them into these categories, and starting in verse 3, he lists the first group that goes. And he calls them, he says, now these are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. And he explains further, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple, the, ser the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. So the first group that we, he's going to introduce us to are the chiefs of the province. And he explains, notice in chapter 11, verse 4, that among those chiefs are some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin. Now, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, remember of the Jewish people, there were the 12 tribes that uh, made up the nation there. As you know, the nation was divided up. They had sort of a civil war. And so the nation was divided in half. The northern half we call Israel. The southern half we call Judah. The northern half was made up of ten tribes. The southern half was only made up of two, the largest of which was Judah, and that's how it got the name Judah. The other tribe there is Benjamin. And so here we're talking about those that are going to reside in the southern half of the area of Israel, those that are of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And Jerusalem is a city within the area of the land of Judah. It's the largest of the cities in the area of Judah. And so picking up in verse 4, it says, Now of the sons of Judah, you have Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, and it goes on from there. And I'll let you kind of read the rest of that and have some fun saying those names or whatever. But those are the first group that he points out, chiefs of the province of the tribe of of Judah. Look down to verse 6 there, and it says, And all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem, there were 468 valiant men. Now, Perez was a descendant of the tribe of, Ju of Judah. All right, so there's a connection still. We're still talking about the tribe of Judah. Also, we learn from the book of Ruth, uh, I think it's the very last verse of the book of Ruth, but it's right around there, that Perez was the great, 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 great grandfather of King David. That's seven greats. And so this particular guy, uh, the ancestor of the king, his 
offspring, if you will, a hundred or so generations later, are now going back. They're living in Jerusalem, what used to be called the city of David. And so there's the connection. So we have of the sons of Judah, as it says in verse 6, 468 valiant men. The next group of people we come to, in addition to the sons of Judah, we learn are the sons of Benjamin. And they're listed for us starting in verse 7. And so it says, and these are the sons of Benjamin. You'll notice as you skip down into right around verses 8 and 9, it says that there are 928 of those men. And notice what it calls them. It calls them men of valor. I don't know if you picked up on that, but the sons of Benjamin are called men of valor. The sons of Judah were called valiant men. And the point is, it takes courage for us to walk with the Lord and to go where the Lord tells us to go. And these men are demonstrating that. So they're men of valor. They're valiant men, as it says there. And again, though, even though we know it takes courage and all that, that's the place of blessing when we step out in faith. It continues in verse 10. It says, And of the priests were Jediah, the son of Jehorab, Jochen, Sariah, the son of Kilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok. And it goes on from there all the way down to verse 14. Now the priests, we've looked at the tribes of Judah, the um, tribe, of, tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin. The priests were from the tribe of Levi. So this is the third group of people, a third tribe, uh, if you will. And if you add up the numbers there in verses 10 through 14, the number adds up to 1,192. Um, and you can see 822, 242, 128. You put those numbers together. It's 1,192 from the tribe of Levi, priests from the tribe of Levi that go and live in Jerusalem. Take notice again, verse 14, it calls these folks mighty men of valor. It takes courage to walk with the Lord. In addition to the, not, to the priests, there were those Levites, verse 15 picks up, that were non-priests. Remember, if you were going to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi, but you also had to be a descendant of Aaron. So there could be Levites that could not be priests, and that's who is described here. And of these non-priests, beginning in verse 15, you have Shemaiah, the son of Hashab, the son of Azricam, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Bunny. I don't think his name is Bunny. I, I think it's Booney or something tough sounding like that. All right, and that's that particular guy. And you can go ahead and you can read the rest of those particular verses to look at those non-priests. And it says in, at the end of uh, verse 18 there, it says the total number of that group, the people that are listed there, the total number is 284. All right, so people are repopulating the city. Now, we have another group, also from the tribe of Levi, starting in verse 19. And specifically, these are the Levites whose job it was to keep the gates of the city or the temple. And you read of them in verse 19, it says the gatekeepers were Jacob, Tamman, and their brothers. And it goes on, it says that there were 172 gatekeepers. Look at verse 20. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites, they were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived on Aphel, and Ziha and Gishpah were over the temple servants. And so the temple servants, they make their residence in the city of Jerusalem, it says, on Aphel. Aphel was a, was a ridge of hills just south of the Temple Mount area today, what we call the Temple Mount area, and just north of the city of David. And so right there, right next to, if you will, uh, the temple 
is where these folks would live. And we have the names of the two men, Ziha and Gishpah, who were in charge of them. Verse 21. Beginning in verse 21, we begin to have the names of the various people that served in overseeing roles there in the city of Jerusalem. And so verse 21, it lists the names of some of these people. The two leading ones, you can see, Ziha and Gishpah. They're over the temple servants. Verse 22 lists the fellow who's the overseer of the Levites. His name is Uzi, and he's probably really tough. Uh, Uzi, the gun, you know, okay. Apparently you're not familiar. All right, nonetheless, um, I have a feeling you don't mess with a guy named Uzi. Um, but anyhow, anybody with me today? All right, I'm sorry about being mean at the beginning or whatever. Just thought that. Uh, all right, anyway, verse 23, for there was a command from the king concerning him and a fixed provision for the singers as the day require. Uh, verse 24, it lists the name of a guy by the name of Pethahiah, and it says that he was at the king's side in all matters. So he's uh, an advisor uh, to the king. Now, the peculiar thing about that statement, to, to say he's at the king's side, there, there was no king in Jerusalem. The king of the people, there's not going to be a Jewish king, and the king of the people was going to be back in Persia somewhere, either in Susa or whatever the other capital there was of, of Persia. And so there's no king that he can be by the king's side. But the point is, you could translate that phrase at the king's side, you could also translate it as deputy. And so the idea is that Pethathiah uh, was a person that was appointed by the king. We believe it was Darius II uh, in all matters concerning the people there in Jerusalem. And then he reports back. All right, let's go on to verse 25. It says, And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dibon and its villages, and in Jacobzeel and its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Molada, and in Beth Pilat and in Hazar Shual, in Beersheba, and its villages, in Ziklag, and in Makona, and its villages, in En-Rimon, in Zorah, in Yarmuth, in Zenoa, Adullam, and their villages, Lakash and its fields, these are all cities and towns, um, and Azika and its villages, I feel like I'm reading like the snow cancellations, and you're listening for your school, or whatever. So they encamped, it says, from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom, the people of Benjamin, I should say, also lived from Yeba onward at Michmash, Aijah, Bethel, and its villages, Anatoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitaim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nabalat, Lot, and Ona, the valley of the craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. And so, just to give you sort of an idea of what we're talking about, we have a map. I think we'll throw the map up there. You, you get an idea. Jerusalem there is the red star. This is probably about 80% of the names that I read to you, just where I could find out roughly where they were situated there. So it gives you an idea. There are those that are in Jerusalem, those that are in the surrounding area, uh, the outskirts of the city living in sort of their villages there. All right, so that's chapter 11. Let's go on to chapter 12. Now before we read chapter 12, let me remind you that Nehemiah and Ezra and a few other people We've been considering them in the later chapters of this book. And they live approximately around the time 430 B.C. Their predecessors, those that came kind of before them and led and were sort of the, the central feature of the book of Ezra and the first, part, um, the first part of the book of Ezra, they were Zerubbabel, he was the governor, and Joshua, he was the high priest. And those two men, they lived roughly around the 500. B.C. or a little bit before 500 B.C. 
So Zerubbabel and Joshua, we'll just say 5.15. Ezra and Nehemiah, 4.30 or so. All right, so two different generations of people. Uh, and we've been considering them. So now here we begin, chapter 12. And notice what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah is going to list sort of the leaders from 100 years earlier. Those that served with Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. So starting off, we'll read, it says, Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, back then, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua. And then it goes on and it lists Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, and all of those other people. Eighteen men are listed there, having lived a hundred and some years before um, Nehemiah, and they're listing them there. Then we have a listing of the Levites. Still, a hundred years earlier, during the days of Zerubbabel and Joshua, and starting in verse 8, it says, And the Levites were Jeshua, Benui, Kadmael, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers were in charge of the songs of thanksgiving, and Bakbukiah, and Uni, and their brothers stood opposite them. So chapter 12, among other things, is a great chapter for those of you about to give birth. You're thinking of baby names. Great chapter. I think Bakpukbaya is a wonderful name um, you might consider. Now verse 10 and 11 is going to list us a succession of high priests. You're only going to have one high priest. And so there'll be a succession of them that are listed here. It's going to start... With Joshua, it says in your Bibles, Jeshua. It starts with him. So remember, he's back with Zerubbabel. And that's roughly around, as we said, 515 B.C. It's going to continue all the way down to, as you can see in, in the verse, right at the end of verse 11, it'll go all the way down to Jadua. Now, Jadua was the high priest of the Jewish people closer to 330 B.C. So this list of people that are listed here, these are the high priests over close to 200 years, all right. beginning in 515, going to 330. In 330 B.C., his, if you remember your history, Alexander the Great, the Greek, is the guy that is ruling over the Jewish people at that particular time. And Jadua is the high priest then. All right. So what that means is this. If Jadua is listed in three, and he lived in 330, then Nehemiah couldn't have written this portion at least of the book because Nehemiah dies roughly around 415. So somebody else wrote this particular portion, these last couple chapters or whatever, and there's no problem with that. Nowhere in, a, in the book does it say Nehemiah even wrote this stuff. We assume that he wrote the vast majority of it, but other people contribute as, as well. Picking up in verse 12, you have the second generation of religious leaders. So the first generation were those that lived with Zerubbabel and Joshua. This is the second generation, and notice it begins in verse 12, and it says, in the days of Jehoiakim, or that's it, Jehoiakim, there were the priests, heads of their father's homes. So just glance back, if you will, at verse 10, and you see there that Jehoiakim was the son of Jeshua. So he was the second high priest in the succession of high priests. And in his day, the following people would lead as priests. And 20 names are listed. And they're listed there in verses 12 through 21, beginning with Moriah, and then Hananiah and Meshulam, and then going through a list of names, again, there's 20 of them, and ending with Hashabiah and Nethanel. Now, I know we look at names like that, and we think, like, this is boring. Like, I don't understand, God. Why do you throw this in there? And I think I say this all the time here. But the Lord takes notice, and I think that's key. And if your name was there, you'd be really blessed to know, I just got up and did my job every day. And the Lord took notice of that, and the Lord does. 
And the Lord takes notice and he jots these guys' names down here. And again, for us, it's just a long list of names. Now, let me explain how this particular section works so we can kind of get a handle on this as well. Let me read that opening verse, verse 12. It says, In the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, of Sariah, Moriah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam. Okay? So the idea is that the first name that is listed, where it says of so-and-so, that first name is the guy from Joshua's day. The second name is the guy from Jehoiakim's day. All right? I, I just appreciate knowing that because it helps me understand what I'm reading. So again, it would read of Sariah in Joshua's day, Moriah in Jehoiakim's day. And it will continue that way through that long listing of names. Then we come to verse 22. And verse 22 is an accelerated listing of the priest. And so it says, in the days of Eliashib, Jehoiada, Johanan, Johanan in verse 11 is listed as Jonathan, same fella, and then Jadua. The Levites were recorded as heads of the fathers' houses, and so too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. And again, these are the same people that were quickly listed back in verses 10 and 11. Now their names and, and who they led is going to be developed a little bit further. And so we have Eliashib, Jehoiada, Jonathan, and Jadua. And in their days, and again, it ranges from 515 to 330 B.C., the means of uh, designating the head of a household was to list the name of the Levite or priest that was over that particular region. So you see there in verse 22, it said the Levites were recorded as the heads of the fathers' houses, and so too were the priests. And then those those men, I should say, are listed in verses 23 through 26. It says, As for the sons of Levi, the heads of their fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites were these people. And it goes on starting with Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Joshua, the son of Kadmael. And it goes on from there through verse 26. Now as we come to verse 27, verse 27 is going to transition away from a listing of all these names and move instead to a ceremony that they're going to have. And they're, they're going to record the ceremony. And the ceremony is the dedication of the city walls. So they've been working so hard for so long to get these walls in place. They, they've been putting up with all sorts of hassles from the enemy. Remember Sanballat and Tobiah coming and harassing them every day. And now the walls are finally complete. You know, I'm reminded what Sanballat and Tobiah said. You know, if a fox goes up on that wall, that wall will fall down, you bunch of weaklings. You think your, your work is going to stand. As you're going to see in here, they have a great choir of men, like hundreds of them, that are going to walk these walls and sing the songs to the Lord. And they, that guy made fun that if a fox goes up there, the walls would fall down. And now they've got hundreds of men that are walking around up there. And that the Lord had kind of brought them to this place. He saw them through all the difficulties, and they could finally rest and enjoy what God had done. And celebrate that and wait for the next instructions. All right, Lord, what do you got next for us to do? And so here they are. That's going to be verse 27. I want you to notice something. Look at chapter 13, verse 1 for a moment. In chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. So chapter 12, verse 27 is going to begin the dedication of the walls of the city. That will continue through the rest of chapter 12 and into chapter 13, and it's all on the same exact day, on that day. And so I figured that since all of the events from chapter 12, 27 through the end of the book 
are taking place on the same day that we'll, we'll take all of them together the next time we come together. And so your job, your homework, if you will, for next week, our goal is to finish the book of Nehemiah next week, and we'll look at the rest of chapter 12 and chapter 13. But before you shut your Bible, as we close this morning, I just want to remind you of a couple things. First thing is this, that Jesus is continually calling you forward in your walk with Him. So I'm speaking to those of you that are believers in Christ. You've given your life to Christ at a particular point in time in your life. You've recognized your need for a Savior, and you became convinced that the only Savior is the Lord Jesus. And you gave your life over to Him. The first point that I, I share with you is this, is that Jesus is continually calling us forward. I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've learned what I need to learn. No, you haven't. We're going to continue to grow and learn as the Lord directs us and guides us. You know, there's a term that we kind of use, you know, none of us really like it. We certainly don't want it applied to us, but it's the term a backslidden Christian. And the idea of a backslidden Christian, it's a term designed to describe where you are with Jesus. Not where somebody else is with Jesus, or not how I'm compared to somebody else that's with Jesus, but where are you with Jesus and in your walk with Him? Are you further back than you were at a previous time in your walk with Him? If so, then you would be classified or you would classify yourself as a backslidden Christian. And the reality is this, if we're not continuing to move forward, then we are slowly sliding backward. And the idea of continual forward motion, it requires continued steps of obedience where we respond to the call and we step out in faith. And so the first point that we make here, we remind ourselves is that Jesus is continually calling us to move forward. The second point that I want to remind you of is this, that the same courage that led these people to voluntarily go and live in Jerusalem is the type of courage that will lead us to walk by faith as well. So let's think about these folks just for a second. For these folks to say yes to Jerusalem, required that they would have to give up some material comforts. So maybe they had a nice little bathroom in their shack out there in the villages. They're not going to have that. It's down the road. You know, you can have one. It's available. But they're going to be required to give up some of their material comforts. For these folks to say yes to Jerusalem, it required that they rearrange some of their social priorities. So a lot of their friends are staying back. 90% are staying back in the villages. But for them to follow the Lord's leading they'd have to give up some of those friends or at least not see those friends as often as they used to because that was what the Lord was calling them to do. So saying yes to the Lord required that they rearrange some of their social priorities. For these folks to say yes to Jerusalem, they were going to have to embrace a life that was going to bring them some problems and hassles that life back in the village would not present to them. And finally, for these folks, folks to say yes to Jesus and embrace becoming a resident of Jerusalem, it meant that they would automatically become a target of the enemy. Because the enemies were going to always gather around the walls of Jerusalem and plot and scheme and try and figure out a way, how can we tear down that city wall again and stop the worship there in the temple? And you're volunteering to go and live in that particular city, which means you're voluntarily putting a target on your back for the enemy the moment that you submitted your change of address form to the post office. You're setting yourself up to become a target of the enemy. You could live with a few other families out in the villages and no one will pay you any mind. But you move into the city of God and you immediately become a target. Now I bring that up because every one of those challenges are the exact same challenges 
than any one of us that are saying, you know what, Lord, I am all in. I'm all in in following you. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll submit myself how you want me to submit myself to you. You say that, and every one of those challenges are yours as well. You'll become a target of the enemy. You'll have to deal with things you never had to deal with before. You may have to break some social relationships that you have. Some of the material things, problems are going to come your way as a result of your decision. To be all in and go where Jesus calls you to go, it's going to require sacrifice in those four areas. But as I've been saying, that's the place of blessing. Some of us that have never kind of made that all-in decision, you probably doubt if that's true. How could that be the place of blessing? That doesn't make any sense. And I just encourage you, look around. Talk to some folks that you know have kind of made those decisions in life. Talk to Pete and Jen, they'll tell you. That's the place of blessing. That's where you discover more of who Jesus is. and He grabs a bigger hold of every area of your heart. And down the road you say, why would I ever not do that again? It's a daily decision. To us, chapters 11 and 12, they're just long listings of names. But to the Lord, these are names of great importance because these are those who willingly offered to live their lives in service to the Lord. And these are those that accepted loss in this world that they may be used in the service of God's kingdom. And these are those that kept saying yes. You know, uh, this week, Elizabeth Elliot died. Many of you know her. You read a lot of her uh, excellent work that she put out. And it was Elizabeth Elliot's husband, Jim Elliot, who made that famous phrase, who said, he is no fool who can give, who gives what he cannot keep to, to buy what he can never lose. And that's the idea. We just keep saying yes. And my prayer for us is that each of us would be as these folks here were. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we delight in you. And we love you. And Father, uh, I just confess on my behalf and I, I suspect on the behalf of others that are here with, uh, with me this morning that too often my eyes are on the things of this world and sort of uh, the trinkets of life, whether that be relationships or material things or just comfort. Lord, they, uh, they just take a, a bigger place in my, uh, in my place of vision or my point of vision. And they become the things uh, that I feel I have to hold on to. Lest I uh, run the risk of losing them. And sadly, Lord, as, as that is happening, you're the one that I seem to be losing. And you just sort of get tucked back deeper into a corner of my closet, if you will. And so, Father, we confess that is the case. And Lord, we pray by Your Spirit that You would be kind today and yet You would bring strong conviction. And Lord, that You would reveal any area of our lives that we have failed to submit to You. Maybe not sinful areas, but areas nonetheless that are hindering us. And Lord, that You would give us the courage to step out. Lord, that we wouldn't be folks sort of on the sideline cheering others that do, but that we would become those people. Stepping out in faith. Running hard after You. Going where You're telling us to go. And Lord, doing those things You tell us to do. Lord, keep calling each of us deeper, we pray. And Lord, we want to submit ourselves to Your will this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.